Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The prophet Ezekiel speaks from a unique perspective. He resides in Babylonia, yet laments the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. His prophecies range from furious messages of rebuke to comforting depictions of the future redemption of the Jewish people. Join us as we speak with Tova Gonzel about a recent commentary, Ezekiel, from Destruction to Restoration. You're listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. And I'm Michael Morales, your host. Dr. Tova Ganzel received her Ph.D. from the Department of Bible in Bar Ilan and has published widely on prophetic literature in the context of the larger ancient Near Eastern world. She was the director of the Midrashah at Bar Ilan University and is one of the first trained women's halakhic advisors. Tova, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. So, Tova, tell us about yourself and your interest in Ezekiel. Well... It depends what kind of answer you want, because the short answer can be that my husband's name is Yechezkel, Ezekiel, but that's not the real reason that happened later. Um, I'll say that uh, my interest in Ezekiel actually started because I was really interested in purity. I was really kind of looking at the world of what's pure and impure, what what makes our lives holy. And when I started, I knew very little about the prophetic literature, but I took uh, a list of the verses that try to describe what's pure after uh, Pentateuch, because I was kind of wondering how that fuses into our world. And then I saw that Ezekiel has a huge issue with what's pure and impure, and um, it was looking for a better world, a pure world, uh, a moral world that kind of, um, I guess, directed me to Ezekiel, where I found um, that his interest became mine. Um, So when I started Actually, looking into Ezekiel, it was about 2000. I'd say it was, I guess, over 20 years ago, which was when I started thinking about a topic for a dissertation. Um, And I can say that it's still part of my interest. I haven't lost interest in it. So I guess it was the right choice. (laughs) You mentioned that previously you weren't very familiar with the book of Ezekiel. Well, likely there's one or two among our listeners in that same boat. So would you offer a brief sketch of the prophet Ezekiel and his historical times? Yeah, so um, it's interesting because I really never took a class on Ezekiel. Um, so I had like no uh, background or no knowledge. Um, so I can really feel for what your audience and our, our audience is thinking. So I'll say this, that uh, Ezekiel prophesied in Babylonia and he started prophesying five years after he was exiled to Babylonia, which was uh, approximately seven years before the first temple was destroyed. Maybe I should say this again to make this clear. He was actually exiled as part of the Jehoiachin exiles 12 years before the first temple was destroyed. And the first prophecy he gives us is five years after he was exiled, which leaves us seven years until the first temple is destroyed. And he continues um, to give us prophecies for at least another decade after the first temple is destroyed. Now, 
What's so interesting about Ezekiel is, I think, first of all, the fact that he's not in Israel, that his prophecies are all in exile. Um, second thing that's very interesting about Ezekiel is that until he came about, there was this notion that prophecies for the Israelites can only be given within Israel. And that if people go to exile, if the Israelites go to exile, like it happened 150 years before he was exiled to Babylonia, uh, when in the middle of the 8th century, uh, 10 tribes were exiled in the Assyrian Empire under the Assyrian rule, uh, they kind of assimilated within the communities that were all uh, exiled around the Assyrian Empire. So there was no really community of Jews in exile that held on to their Jewish identity. Um, so when Ezekiel and his people were exiled um, to Babylonia before the first temple was destroyed, it was kind of assumed that they'll also kind of be cut off, that they'll be part of, you know, the tradition of Israelites that were exiled and didn't really keep any Jewish identity. So Ezekiel's really a turning point in two manners. First, that he got prophecy in Babylonia. And second, that he really kept this Jewish community live, made sure that they held on to their Jewish identity, um, understood that God stayed with them. And I would say in a one sentence that he basically is the first turning point where Jews actually live in diaspora. And it's from then, from 597, from the Jehoiachin exile until today, all throughout all the years that Jews live in exile and the theology behind living in exile, the understanding that Jews can be part of a community even though they don't live in Israel or around a temple or a, a temple that's actually built and working uh, is all in the book of Ezekiel. I'll make one more brief comment, okay? Of course. And I'll say that as opposed to Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel really gives us a gift, which is the dates. It's a book really written in order. We move on with Ezekiel. We know when was pre-destruction, post-destruction. We know where we're standing. We know what happened at each time. You know, when you look at Jeremiah, it's, it's such a mess. You kind of, you want to figure out what happened, when was the temples destroyed? And you go to chapters 33 to 40, and then you go again to 52, and you're like, what's going on here? Where's the beginning and the end of just a simple question of when the temple was destroyed and what happened? When you go to Isaiah, you're trying to figure out, wait a minute, is this an 8th century BC? Is this a 2nd Isaiah? Is this a 3rd Isaiah? Who are we looking at now when we read these chapters? And what was the historical setting that the prophet was prophesizing against? None of those questions come up in Ezekiel. Him, maybe his editors, maybe the people of the Great Assembly, they put this book really in order. So when we follow the theology, um, we understand what Ezekiel was telling the people before they were uh, exiled. We see, uh, I would say, the additional people were exiled when the temple was destroyed. We can understand what happened when the temple was destroyed in Israel and when did the people in Babylonia hear about it. And we can even understand what was their reaction um, in the years afterwards. So basically, except for one group of chapters to the nations that's put in theomatic order, it's all chronological and it really enables us to do uh, uh, or to get a good understanding of what's at stake, who's he talking to, what's happening around him. Uh, so that's, that's Ezekiel. You mentioned chronology already. 
What are some of the other features of the book of Ezekiel that make it unique? And perhaps give us a basic overview of its contents. Okay, so I'll say two things about Ezekiel. First of all, um, he really has some themes that run throughout the book. And when people look at them uh, in fractions or in one chapter, they usually see only one part of the story. And I'll give an example that's a popular example. Ezekiel 1 opens with the story of the chariot, you know, what we call in Hebrew, Ma'aseh Merkava. It's really uh, a detailed description of God's glory. Well, there's nothing like it in any uh, other, not in the Pentateuch, not in the prophetic literature at all, where really a prophet describes in such great detail what the gods or what the heavenly God looked like throughout chapter one. Um, and, you know, people read that chapter as Haftarah, read it in the synagogue on Shavuot, and it's really read often as this one very special, unique chapter. But if you look through this theme throughout the book, you understand that there's a reason Ezekiel gives such a uh, detailed description of God's glory in the first chapter, which is because when you'll reach chapters 9 to 11, you'll see a description of God leaving the temple. And the prophet will reference and say, you remember God I saw in the first chapter? This is the God I see now leaving the temple. That detailed description is for a purpose. It's so when the prophet describes in, in the chapters later that God's really leaving, people around him will say, wait a minute, but there's this temple still standing in Jerusalem. What are you talking about? It's not destroyed yet. And he'll say, yeah, I know, but trust me, because this God, I know exactly how he looks. Do you remember how detailed uh, was the description at the beginning? And it doesn't even end there, because in the final chapters, when people will be heartbroken because the, chap the temple will already have been destroyed, He'll tell them, I see God returning to the temple in the future. And they'll tell him, what do you know about God? And he'll tell them, it's that same God that I saw on the channel of Kabar. And you can trust me because you're, bear with me. You were with me in chapter one and you saw the detailed description. And you saw me to tell you in chapters nine to 11 that it's God departing from the temple. And now you can see in the final chapters when I'm telling you, I can see him coming back into the temple, sitting at his throne. Um, back in his place and i'll tell you even more than it says the prophet there's a closed chamber there's a closed door he won't leave the temple anymore he wants the people to bear with him but not only to bear with him to believe him to trust him and that's a good example i think of a theme that you understand throughout the book and it's not the only theme; that's a central one but these themes are really i think part of the prophetic message and that's why it's such a holistic book in so many ways because Things that we hear about at the beginning kind of get to a completion or a full understanding when we finish the 40th chapter of the book and we understand where he's going. I'll give one more example. Is that okay? Of course. So there's the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem is called, in the beginning of the book, the bloody city. Um, its metaphors are all to really harsh metaphors of... Uh, women that are doing wrong deeds. Um, and and the, the descriptions are extremely, extremely harsh. And you ask yourself, why does Ezekiel have to go about such a hard description of uh, idolatrous woman in the, in the city of Jerusalem? Why does he have to literally describe these women as doing any uh, act that shouldn't be done by men or women together? 
um, against breaking all the laws, the moral laws, and obviously the Pentateuchal guides for the way the Israelites um, should be acting. But when you reach the final chapters and you see that he doesn't use the name Jerusalem anymore, the names Jerusalem of the, the city Jerusalem is gone. Not only that, the final verse of the book says that the name of the new city will be God is there. And we kind of need an explanation. What happened to Jerusalem? Where did Jerusalem disappear? And all of a sudden you understand why throughout the first part of the book, um, it was described in such a severe way. It was basically giving us the background for understanding why in God's, in Ezekiel's eyes and the way he's describing God's prophetic message, uh, the city of Jerusalem doesn't have any more legitimacy and will not exist or will not exist in the same way in the future. So again, if you look only at the chapters that describe the city of Jerusalem, you'll see a very harsh description, a very radical description, um, uh, a very detailed description. And you might think to yourself, I got the idea, why go into such great detail of such harsh uh, descriptions? But if you go throughout to the Restoration Prophecies, and you see that there's a city, a city, a city, never named Jerusalem, and, and God will be in the city as its final name, kind of understand why the, the chapters at the beginning were so, so central and substantial. So that's example number two of like a theme throughout the book. So that's, that's I think, the first answer to your question, which is, how do we understand this book? It's basically full of themes that kind of run throughout them. And as long as you're bearing with the, the prophet and you're holding on, you're moving on from chapter to chapter, you'll see these metaphors, you'll see these themes unfold and making more sense and having a deeper meaning. Um, this is not to say that we can't appreciate a chapter on its own merits. I mean, the first chapter of Ezekiel, as I said, is read by itself as a Haftara, but um, it's still very substantial to see the theme throughout. If I had to just give in a nutshell, really um, a brief description of the book, which is, I think, the second question you asked me, then we really have from chapter 1 to 24, um, 24 chapters devoted to pre-destruction pre prophecies. Um, and what we basically see in them is... Um, Again, in a brief way, um, the explanation to why the temple will be destroyed. And basically, the prophet goes throughout the different topics. And he'll talk about the leaders. He'll talk about the failed prophets. He'll talk about the people doing idolatry. He'll talk about the kings. He'll talk about every single aspect that bringing them all together um, basically gives us one bottom line, which is the temple is to be destroyed. And moreover than that, he's basically saying the turning point is not when the temple is going to be destroyed. When, the, when that happens, it'll go, that's already a temple with no God inside it anyway. God's glory is leaving the temple already 12 years earlier, and it's just the final years um, of the final, uh, just to make it happen in a realistic world. But it's not, nothing then would, can, can be changed and no tshuva can be done, no repentance can be done, uh, things can't be changed anymore. That's the first 24 chapters. They're basically more like an introduction, even though they're about half the book. Uh, then we have from chapter 25 to 32, 
uh, a thematic part of the book that also has dates, but it's put together of uh, Ezekiel's addressing to the nations. Now, we have to understand that part of what was so challenging in the times of Ezekiel was that if the temple would have been destroyed by the Assyrian Empire, it would have been very clear. I mean, this was a huge empire. It lasted for hundreds of years. It conquered so many countries. Um, for it to conquer the temple and to conquer in Yehuda uh, and the Judeans just made sense. But that wasn't the case. The temple, the Jerusalem temple was destroyed by a prophet, uh, by a God that prophesied by Ezekiel that was done by Babylonia, which had just come about um, at rise at 605 BCE. That means that the Jehoiachin exile, the 597 happened less than a decade after they rise. And at 587 BCE, when the temple was destroyed, they weren't even there for two decades. So we have a destruction of a temple, a temple being destroyed at a, under, with a, done by an empire that people are kind of looking at and wondering if it'll survive at all. Maybe the Egyptians will take over. Um, so from a theological point of view, that's obviously very substantial because it makes a, the case clear that it was because it was God's intention and not because this was a strong empire. Uh, on the contrary, it was a weak empire. Um, but it also raised a question of why did God enable the Jews' name to be um, uh, really not only downgraded, but seen as uh, a nation that had a God that couldn't really help them or save them or save even his own temple or um, be on of a high status, of a strong status. So. It's God's response to this, I would say, theological challenge that we see from chapters 25 to 32, where he's basically going throughout the different nations, uh, nation by nation, the nations that are right around Israel, Moab, uh, Palestine, you know, the Ammon, and also the nations that were a harder theological um, challenge, which are basically Egypt and Tyre, um, and responding to the basically saying, Yes, this was intentionally done by God. He's strong enough. He was strong enough. He will be strong enough to save his own people and his temple. But there was a reason that this temple had to be destroyed by him himself these years. And that doesn't mean that you guys or your God, whether it's Marduk or someone else, uh, should be looked at as stronger than the Israelites' God. So that's the challenge. I would say the theological challenge that's answered in those uh, chapters to the nations. And then the final part of the book is, I think, what the book is all gearing at or aiming at, which is the restoration prophecies. Now, here I'll say that the reason Ezekiel is very much known and quoted is because he has the most detailed restoration um, description in the whole prophetic literature on whole. And it's from chapter 33 that the People in Babylonia hear from the person in Jerusalem that that's it, the temple was destroyed, and they look about and say, what's going on now? And then Ezekiel kind of, after he tells them, well, you're not doing any better than the people in Jerusalem, but I'll give you these prophecies, and you'll know what's happening next. And then he goes on from chapter 34 to 48, which is the end of the book, with an extremely, extremely detailed uh, prophecy of what the future of the Israelites will look like. And that's also divided into two. From chapter 34 to 39, he basically talks about the restoration of the land, the people, the leadership, um, anything earthly that you could imagine 
that's really uh, about looking right and left, looking at a land that's been totally destroyed, that has nothing left there, and seeing it be rebuilt, seeing the trees being planted, seeing it being uh, full of grass, full of rain, full of fruit, you know, it'll be back central uh, as a central land. At the end of that comes what's known as the war against Gog and Magog, which uh, throughout history got a name of, I guess, the end of all uh, the years. You know, if you go- would Google Gog and Magog, I haven't done it, but I can guess that you'll see, you know, this symbolizing the end of all of the world or the world to come or the big battle of God within the world or something like that of that sort. So it's really God's theological answer. And then the final chapters from 40 to 48 are a visionary temple. What's very interesting about this visionary temple is that we don't see a detailed description of a temple to such a detail at all in the biblical texts. Meaning if you'll go back and try to find in Samuel or Kings, uh, what did the first temple look like? You won't see such a detailed description. And if you try to look at the uh, books that discuss the second temple in the biblical period, I mean, whether it's Ezra or Nehemiah, whether it's Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, it doesn't matter which of these books you'll open, uh, you won't find any detailed description of a temple. But uh, the visionary temple is the one that's most detailed. That's uh, something to think about. But if we want to be convinced that this visionary temple is a real vision, then we basically need, I think, the first 39 chapters of the book introducing who this prophet is, what are his strengths, what is, who is his audience, and why we should be listening to him. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> That was a brief answer. That was excellent. Tova, what would you say is the main message of Ezekiel? Well, first of all, I have to answer you uh, honestly. It depends what day you ask me. Um, I mean, I really feel I connect different messages uh, from this book at different times. (laughs) Uh, And I think that it's such a, it really is, it's such a fascinating book because it has so many different levels and so many different perspectives that you can uh, really look at it from or analyze it from. I'll answer an answer. It's not exactly the best, a direct answer, but I'll say one thing. I think that Ezekiel contributes a very substantial contribution to the prophetic literature because it's not in line with the same messages that we always uh, see or are regular to hear, whether it's from Isaiah or from Jeremiah. And I think the, the, ironically, I think that the Ezekiel's main contribution is the fact that we learn through Ezekiel that the biblical or the Old Testament's messages are in harmony, but can be contradicting each other. <laughs> And we kind of have to view uh, a godly perspective or a theological perspective of the world by understanding there's no one right, one right text or one prophetic message or one. So, so my tip for today, my answer is that the fact that it's theological messages actually seem to contradict other uh, messages from, I guess, other prophets um, kind of contribute to, to, in my mind, to understanding that we live in a complex world, and it, it was always a complex world. We have this fantasy, like, I don't know, in the 5th or 6th century BCE, things were clear, and there was a prophet, and he gave us all the right and wrong answers. Well, no, because it depends which what prophet you listened to that day and what answer you got. And these messages didn't all seem like they 
can can really make sense together. So I think that's Ezekiel's contribution, giving us another perspective, telling us there's not one story that 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 you know is is the correct one, but the world is complex and there are many different points of view. And here's another radical, interesting, different, surprising one. Well, now Tova, we couldn't let you go without getting to the million dollar question. How are we to understand the last section of the book, chapters 40 through 48, related to a new temple? There are so many details, but then again, chapter 47, you have a river which seems symbolic. So how are we to understand this temple? Is it to be built? Is it not to be built? Was it built? Will it be built? Wow. Um, So I don't have an answer. You understand that. I can give you some thoughts, but uh, it's not as if I have the right answer I'm about to pull out. I'll say, and this really connects to what uh, I was saying before, that it gives us another option on the table. And the option it gives us, which is very different from what we're used to seeing, is an isolated temple that is really not open to anyone, and very few people are welcome to it. It has no vessels. (laughs) besides really a simple temple, a simple table and an altar, which is like minimal, bare, bare minimum, a temple needs to actually be able to be a temple, right? Because you need some kind of sacrifice. Um, the sacrifices are really toned down to very, very minimal. We don't even hear of, we hear of holidays that we hear in the Pentateuch from, but some are missing. Like we don't have a substantial holiday like Rosh Hashanah. We don't have a substantial holiday like Yom Kippur. Uh, we don't know that there's a high priest or that he has what to go into a holy of holiness place in the temple that maybe doesn't exist. No menorah. No. I mean, it's like an extremely different perspective of a temple. And it does have, which is exactly what you mentioned in the chapter 47, an alternative to this, uh, to the people coming to the temple, which is kind of the temple coming out to the people by this river that comes out of the temple's uh, door, or I should say, forefront, and kind of brings the holiness out to the people until the Dead Sea. But um, as I said before, it's part of a theme. So the theme is you really, it's because of you guys that the temple became impure. So now I'm going to take charge and make sure that the temple stays pure by keeping you guys away. I won't keep you away from me because I'm going to send you a, a holy river that has these uh, magical. Um, uh, I, I would say magical capabilities and you can always be uh, healthy and you can always have food from it and fruits that'll be there all year round and, you know, it'll have ongoing uh, trees and plants, whatever, all streams out of the temple for the people uh, to enjoy, but that basically keeps them far and out. Um, so to answer your question, I think that what I take from Ezekiel on, on Ezekiel's temple is that the temple will not be such an, uh, uh, I would say, essential part of Jewish life, at least if you're not one of the few people or personnel, very few personnel that are invited to work around the temple. And since that's the case, and since what comes out of Ezekiel, that the temple won't be central, whether it exists or doesn't exist, um, I guess that it marginalizes the whole question for me because it basically tells me, listen, it's not such a, it's, it's not, I mean, the whole, our story won't totally depend on whether the temple exists or not. And maybe I'll say, I'll turn this into the, or I'll explain why this is also part of a theme because um, I think this is extremely, extremely uh, a 
crucial to understand. When Ezekiel tells us in the first part of the book, there's a temple standing, but God's not in it anymore. So the building isn't what it's all about. And then at the end of the book, after a long journey tells us, there will be a temple standing, but you guys won't be invited to it because that's what uh, keeps it pure. He's basically, if you think about it thematically, he's basically telling the people, your interaction with the temple is not what God's relationship with the people is all about. Whether it's at a time when a temple stood, but God wasn't there anymore, so it didn't matter if you walked in and out of it. Anyway, all you were doing were wrong deeds and idolatrous uh, acts, and it had no um, difference whether it was in a temple or not because God was out of there. Or whether at the end of the book where he's basically telling them, you have to act in uh, in ways that respect you and respect God, regardless of the question of what's happening in the temple, that's really a place for God to dwell amongst Israel, the Israelites. But it's not relevant for you. I mean, if you're there, then this temple, whether imaginary or for real, uh, will be there, but your interaction with it won't change. So I think that's that's really what his, he's trying to tell us. It's up, what do you, where does that meet you, Michael? I think about those closing words, that the name of the city is the Lord is there, and the way that it resolves this central problem that Ezekiel brings out, that God's presence had left his house, that he was not with his people, that the temple was surely going to be destroyed, and how in a wondrous way God promises that the covenant relationship will nevertheless be fulfilled and come to fruition, that he will dwell among his people. I agree. (laughs) So Tova, what's next for you? Are you going to continue uh, pursuing Ezekiel or have you moved on to another prophet or any other project? That's an excellent question. So the answer is that I'm doing two different things. The first is that I'm looking at the Persian period now and I'm asking myself, uh, I hinted to this, that since we know so little about the second temple from the scriptures, is there anything up in the Persian texts that there are a ton of Persian cuneiform texts that are kind, constantly being uh, written up and described by scribes? Can that help us evaluate a little bit better those so little information we have about the second temple? Uh, and I'll even say more than that is the fact that the second temple uh, taking place within such a dominant Persian empire uh, influencing the ways that rituals are being kept uh, in the Judean community that had come back from Persia or had come back from Babylonia and obviously was highly influenced. So that's question number one. And the other thing that I'm dealing with, which is a totally different aspect, is about uh, which I deal with uh, on in an ongoing conversation, is about believers in the modern study of the Bible and. Uh, currently, I'm asking myself how 19th century scholarly uh, known rabbis that really uh, embraced, I would say, what started to be critical thinking of the Bible and the way it was written up, whether higher criticism or lower criticism. How did that? How was that accepted in uh, you know in in rounder crowds, so or circles? So. That's a brief answer to your question. Tova, what a delight to hear about your work on Ezekiel. Thank you for being with us. My privilege. Thank you so much. Warm regards from Israel. Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.